You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 111, Bad Omens. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by thanking our Patreon supporters. Only a small minority of listeners actually contribute to the show financially, but without your support, none of this would be possible. I'd like to invite the rest of you to join us on Patreon. We just released the 20th of our patrons-only bonus episodes, which included topics like command and control in Napoleonic battles, Napoleonic veterans in the USA, and a first-hand account of a somewhat farcical duel between two soldiers of the Grande Armée. $2 a month gets you access to all that bonus content, plus ad-free versions of the regular episodes. I hope you'll consider it. Anyway. We left off last time in late 1807. It had been a particularly senseless and brutal few months of the war, with the British massacring 2% of the population of neutral Copenhagen and the French launching their own unprovoked attack on defenseless neutral Portugal. If you set aside the moral and legal issues and try to look at this phase of the war dispassionately from a purely strategic perspective, I think it's fair to say the British won this round. Their intervention in Denmark had brought the Danes into the war on Napoleon's side, but the atrocity at Copenhagen had succeeded in bringing the Danish fleet under British control. Its ships were now either safe in England or at the bottom of the sea. In Portugal, the French had succeeded in their primary objective of seizing control of the country and closing its ports to British trade. However, the Portuguese and their new British allies had managed to mitigate this disaster by evacuating most of the court, the government, the fleet, and the treasury to Brazil. Bonaparte was not happy. He levied a huge indemnity on Portugal and ordered General Junot to seize the property of all those who had fled to Brazil. The remains of the Portuguese army were now reorganized into a new force to be known as the Portuguese Legion. They would fight under their own officers, but on Napoleon's side. The French had not been welcomed as liberators in Portugal, to put it mildly. They had faced hostility, and even isolated acts of violent resistance from average people. 
These attitudes were hardened in the aftermath of the invasion, by huge tax increases to pay for Napoleon's indemnity, property seizures, and by harsh reprisals against anyone who resisted. As Junot's men settled into their occupation, there were ominous signs that the country was not totally pacified. Sporadic killings of French soldiers continued in rural areas, and there were violent anti-French riots in Lisbon. Despite all the problems and failures of the invasion of Portugal, Napoleon was resolved to move ahead with his plans for Iberia. As I mentioned in episode 109, he saw this region as a loose end that needed to be tied up if his new order was to succeed. Portugal was now more or less under French control. Next, it would be Spain's turn. In September of 1807, a comet passed close enough to Earth to be visible by the naked eye in parts of southern Spain. As they had for generations, the local peasants interpreted this as a harbinger of doom. Violence and civil discord were right around the corner, at least so it was said in rural Andalusia. More educated and enlightened people probably laughed at such crude superstition. But those peasants might have been onto something, because not long after the comet's appearance, things started to fall apart. Turning our attention back to Spain means talking about the country's flamboyant, incompetent prime minister, Manuel Godoy, ludicrously titled the Prince of Peace, but often referred to as the Sausage Maker by his numerous enemies. As you might recall, Godoy was a royal favorite. Somehow both the lover of Queen Maria Luisa and the trusted right-hand man of her husband, King Charles IV. Godoy had used his strange connection with the royal couple to sideline all potential rivals for power. By this point in our story, he had practically unchallenged control over every facet of the Spanish state. King Charles had never been very interested in his duties as monarch, and seemed happy to be relieved of the burdens of power. Basically, no one else in Spain was pleased with this state of affairs, but in an absolute monarchy, other people's opinions didn't count for much. As you listened to episode 109 and heard me describe Godoy's rise, I'm sure at least some of you were wondering, how could people have allowed this to happen? At every step of the way, Godoy had shown himself to be selfish, petty, and incapable. His ascent was a national disaster. Anyone who acted against Godoy would provoke the rage of the king and queen, and probably suffer severe consequences. But in these dire circumstances, you would think there would have been people willing to take that risk, either out of a sense of duty to their country or concern for their own personal futures. The short answer is, plenty of people tried to stop Godoy, none of them got very far. The sausage maker was certainly no genius, but he seems to have understood the implications of his relationship with the king and queen better than anyone else. When someone made a move against him, he simply went to Charles and Maria Luisa and got them dismissed. You don't need to be terribly smart or skilled at the game of courtly intrigue when you hold the ultimate trump card. Unfortunately for Godoy, he had one enemy at court who could not be fired, Crown Prince Ferdinand, the oldest son and heir of King Charles. Like basically everyone in Spain, Prince Ferdinand hated the sausage maker. As you might imagine, there was a personal edge to these feelings. 
Not only was Godoy ruining the court and the government, he was damaging the prince's family as well. He had been a malign influence over Ferdinand's mother and father almost as long as the prince could remember. By this point in our story, Ferdinand was only 23 years old, but he soon became the focus of all the anti-Godoy feelings within the Spanish aristocracy and government. Perhaps he was a bit young to be thrust into this role, but there was no one else. At some point during this period we've been discussing, Ferdinand and his supporters began plotting against the sausage maker. Moderate legal plans to limit Godoy's power had failed in the past, and so this conspiracy would resort to drastic illegal measures. A coup d'etat to remove the king and queen from power, thus releasing Spain from Godoy's oily grasp. In the fall of 1807, the Spanish royal family left Madrid for the famous palace of El Escorial, just northwest of the city. This is sort of the spiritual home of the Spanish monarchy. Many members of the royal family are buried here, making it the perfect venue for some serious family drama. On October 27, 1807, King Charles returned to his chambers to find an anonymous note waiting for him. The author warned the king that his own son was plotting against him. Charles ordered Prince Ferdinand's possessions searched, and his men soon discovered correspondence and documents that confirmed all the accusations. Like his father, Ferdinand was a man of weak character. As soon as he realized he was caught, the young prince threw himself at his parents' mercy, ratting out every one of his co-conspirators and begging for forgiveness. As many of you have probably already guessed, it is generally believed that this anonymous letter was written by Manuel Godoy, or someone working on his instructions. Ferdinand had drawn the French ambassador into the plot, and Godoy had learned of it through his contacts in Paris. At least, that is the most widely accepted theory. It has also been suggested that the whole conspiracy might have been a setup from the very beginning, orchestrated by Godoy as a way to flush out his remaining enemies at court and trick the prince into incriminating himself. Maybe something that elaborate would be a bit beyond Godoy's abilities, but then again, despite his many shortcomings, he was a devious character. In any case, intentionally or not, the scandal worked out perfectly for Godoy. He had managed to turn the king and queen against their own son, who was one of his only remaining enemies. And he had kept his own involvement secret, thus avoiding any potential damage to his own all-important relationship with Charles and Maria Luisa. The charges against young Prince Ferdinand were particularly serious because they involved a foreign power. As I already mentioned, one of the people Ferdinand had roped into this plot was François de Beauharnais, the French ambassador in Madrid. That name might sound familiar to you, because he was the brother of Empress Josephine's first husband. What can I say, in some ways, Napoleonic Europe was a very small world. Anyway, Ambassador Beauharnais had responded favorably to Ferdinand's overtures. The young prince was a widower, and suggested to the ambassador that he might be willing to marry a French woman of Napoleon's choosing thus signaling his willingness to maintain, and maybe even expand, the Franco-Spanish alliance. This looked quite bad, but given Spain's close and unequal relationship with France, 
anyone making a big move on the Spanish political scene would have probably had to secure Napoleon's blessing, or at the very least, his acquiescence. Despite the very serious charges against him, the king and queen decided to forgive young Prince Ferdinand, claiming that he had been led astray by others. None of his co-conspirators ended up facing severe consequences either. Most people approved of what they had been trying to do, and with his own popularity at an all-time low, Charles decided it wasn't worth inflaming public opinion with controversial prosecutions. Just to keep the timeline straight, these events occurred concurrently with Junot's invasion of Portugal. Junot crossed the Franco-Spanish border on October 17th, ten days before King Charles received that anonymous letter. This affair has gone down in history as the El Escorial Conspiracy. It ended with Godoy strengthened and his enemies confounded, yet again. However, it showed that opposition to the sausage maker ran deep. By this point, Godoy had been in power for over six years, and had been a major force at court for even longer. However, even after all that time, apparently the Spanish elite were getting no closer to accepting him or his administration. Godoy was stronger than ever, but remained as intensely hated as ever. As for Prince Ferdinand, even after he was humiliated, rebuked in public by his own parents, his reputation among the wider public had never been better. People were eager to embrace anyone who stood up to Godoy. The failure of the El Escorial conspiracy did not represent the end of Spain's political woes. Meanwhile, at the very same time these events were playing out, there was actually a second crisis building as well, only tangentially related to the prince's failed conspiracy. You may remember from episode 109 that France and Spain had recently signed a secret agreement in which the Spanish had agreed to allow French troops onto their soil for a joint invasion of Portugal. Almost as soon as Junot entered Portuguese territory, it was clear that this campaign would not be much of a campaign. The Portuguese army did not resist. The government put all its efforts into evacuating, not fighting. The only serious resistance had come in the form of disgruntled peasants murdering French stragglers. And yet, even after victory in Portugal was obviously assured, fresh waves of French troops continued crossing the Pyrenees. On November 22nd, General Pierre-Antoine Dupont led another corps of 25,000 men across the border, doubling the French military presence in Iberia. Incidentally, Dupont is the basis for the character Armand Dubert from the film The Duelists, in which he is played by Keith Carradine, which you've heard me reference on the show before. Anyway, as soon as Dupont and his men left France, Marshal Bonadrien Monset began assembling a corps of 30,000 men, who entered Spain about a month later. Junot's presence in Iberia made sense. He was a friend of the emperor who had fallen out of favor and needed a chance for redemption. General Dupont's appearance didn't really raise any eyebrows either. He was a competent leader, but nowhere near the top rung of French commanders. But Monset was a marshal, one of only a tiny handful of men at the very top of the French military hierarchy. What was he doing entering Spain after the campaign in Portugal was already over? A few weeks later, Napoleon made an even more surprising appointment. Joachim Murat was named overall commander of all French forces in Iberia, another marshal of France, 
and Grand Duke of Berg, and one of Napoleon's oldest friends and allies. He was even married to the emperor's sister, Caroline. Murat was one of the most celebrated officers in the entire French military, and one of the most recognizable faces of the imperial regime. And this was a man who was addicted to action. Despite his lofty position, you could often find Murat right in the thick of battle. What was he doing taking command over a region where there was no fighting? Under the terms of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, the French had the right to be there, but understandably, the Spanish began asking questions. Napoleon had plenty of excuses at the ready. These were support troops for Junot's corps, or reinforcements, or merely securing the French supply lines to Lisbon, or guarding against a British invasion. But as these forces fanned out across northern and central Spain, leaving garrisons in towns and fortresses they passed, the official story looked less and less believable. Many Spaniards began to suspect their allies were up to something. It didn't seem like the French were merely passing through, and there were certainly a lot more of them than necessary for their stated mission. By mid-February, there were nearly a hundred thousand French troops in Iberia, and the vast majority were in Spain, not Portugal. As more and more Spaniards came into contact with French forces, public concern grew. Many worried the country was being occupied by stealth. The Spanish government was well known to be weak and under French influence. It was easy for people to believe they had somehow been co-opted into allowing Napoleon to invade the country without a fight. And for once, the conspiracy theorists were more or less right. Bonaparte was planning to tighten his grip over Iberia, and he had exploited Godoy's weakness to get the acquiescence of the Spanish government. As we've seen in past episodes, in every country, the appearance of foreign troops almost always provoked fear among the common people. Even if those foreign troops were not at war with the country in question, it was a well-established fact that strange soldiers meant trouble. Wherever Napoleonic armies went, there was almost always tension between soldiers and the civilians they encountered. In Spain in late 1807 and early 1808, this was compounded by the uncertainty about the true purpose of these troops, and the pre-existing hatred of Godoy and his administration. There's also the fact that many Spaniards were already disinclined to trust the French. If you'll think back to episode 108, you'll recall that public perceptions of France were negative in many corners of Europe. Napoleon had worked hard to tone down the more radical and eccentric aspects of the revolution, pivot to the political center, and return the country to normality. He had done a lot to change the perception of his regime at home, but outside the empire, many still viewed France as a dangerous rogue state, governed by radical fanatics who wanted to destroy Christianity. That was particularly true in Catholic countries. As you know from our early episodes, the Vatican had been one of the most committed opponents of the revolution. All over Europe, many Catholic priests had taken up the cause by preaching against the new doctrines espoused in Paris. This was especially true in Spain. As we discussed in episode 109, Spain was perhaps the most Catholic country in Europe, and the Spanish clergy were very conservative. 
by this point in our story, France had become something of a cultural signifier within Spanish society. Anyone who was seen as not pious enough, too interested in newfangled Enlightenment ideas, too effete, too liberal, or even too fashionable, might be labeled an afrancesado, or to translate rather crudely into English, Frenchified. In fact, many Spaniards believed this was the problem with Godoy. His fellow aristocrats may have viewed him as a country rube, but to average people, he seemed like a preening fancy boy. Within the court, Godoy was well known as an enemy of the liberal faction. But less sophisticated observers mostly saw him as a liberal, and saw the failures of his administration as proof of the folly of so-called enlightened ideas. And of course, under Godoy's administration, Spain had moved closer to France on the world stage, and in some ways had come to be dominated by Napoleon's empire. Many saw this as proof that Godoy was under Bonaparte's spell, or even actively working against Spain's interests to help France. Of course, we know better. Godoy and Bonaparte hated each other. Nobody in Madrid was happy with their alliance with France, but under the circumstances, they'd had little choice. Back in 1806, the sausage maker had actually tried to stab France in the back. And Napoleon was, at this very moment, in the process of double-crossing Godoy. But these facts were not known to the wider public. Looking at the events of the past few years from the outside, with their pre-existing biases against France, some within Spain had come to view Godoy as the ultimate Francophile, and his relationship with France and Napoleon and all they represented as the source of all the government's problems. With all that context, hopefully you have a better idea of the paranoia that spread throughout Spain as French troops began to occupy towns and fortifications, and people began to learn the shocking details of Prince Ferdinand's attempted coup. For years, it had felt like a crisis was slowly building. Now, it seemed things might be coming to a head, although no one could tell what was really going on or what would happen next. Is it really fair to call these ominous feelings paranoia? After all, as they say, it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. The popular perception of these events got most of the details wrong. But in broad strokes, how wrong were they, really? Spain's relationship with France really was destructive and unequal. The Spanish government really had been co-opted by their more powerful ally. People were right to be concerned that all these French troops had an ulterior motive. They did. They had not come to destroy the Catholic Church or persecute true-believing Christians, but Napoleon really was conspiring against Spain's interests. And above all, they were correct in their belief that this long-simmering crisis was about to boil over. Spain was at a crossroads. The winter of 1807-8 through 8 would determine the course of the country's future. Would Spain fall deeper into French domination, or would someone try to arrest these events and change course? eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. It seems this was one of those cases where high status and education were actually a barrier to seeing the truth. While the peasants became increasingly frightened, trading rumors about Napoleon's secret plans for their country, many in the upper classes dismissed these concerns. Some educated Spaniards actually believed France would be their savior, that Napoleon would depose Charles, install Prince Ferdinand on the throne, and finally get rid of the sausage maker. Around this time, a young Catalan university student wrote, quote, Ordinary people continue to think that they are to become subjects of a French prince. It is the clerics who are whipping up these ideas, clearly because their own interests hallucinate and preoccupy them. Imagine the state our nuns are in, believing they are to be sent packing immediately. The friars are in the same state, and the priests fear a formidable reform. I see everything with serenity and believe that nothing will happen as is commonly feared. End quote. Two years later, that young student would be killed by French soldiers. With the country falling into fear and uncertainty, mysterious foreign troops sweeping across the land, and chaos within the government, this would have been a good time for King Charles to finally assert himself. However, this was not his nature. Charles always took the path of least resistance. He had never stood up to the French in the past, and he was not about to start now. But on the other hand, he was also unwilling to throw in with Napoleon. Instead, the royal family decided to move south. As of yet, there were no French troops in southern Spain. If he stayed in Madrid, Charles would have to make a choice to either welcome the French or organize resistance. Moving south would allow him to continue sitting on the fence, and so he ordered his servants to start packing. Across northern and central Spain, military officers had to decide what to do about this sudden influx of French troops. Most of them had orders from Madrid to extend every courtesy to their allies. And in some cases, they were even ordered to hand over control of the fortifications their troops occupied. But many Spanish officers had understandable reservations about handing over strategic positions to a foreign army with unknown intentions. In some places, they swallowed their doubts and welcomed the French with open arms. After all, in spite of the ominous events of the past few weeks, the two countries were still allies, and Napoleon did technically have the permission of the Spanish government. Others were more wary. Some even refused to hand over the keys to their fortifications. Despite the reassuring words from Madrid, many Spanish officers put their units on high alert, just in case. Something was going on. No one could yet predict where or how, but it was becoming clear to many within the Spanish military that their country might need them at some point in the near future. Almost everywhere the French appeared, there were confrontations between Napoleon's troops and Spanish civilians. Some of these ended with deadly violence. 
After Barcelona was occupied, the city was so restive that the French commander ordered his troops to confiscate the ropes from every bell tower. This was a precaution against rebellion. During an urban revolt of this era, the rebels would typically ring the church bells to call people out of their homes and workplaces to join the fight. Anxiety was growing in all quarters. Something had to give. And still, the king refused to make a decision. Godoy continued to respond to Napoleon's diplomatic communiques, and even continued approving new French garrisons in Spanish towns and fortresses, although by now these orders were often ignored. On February 1st, Napoleon released a proclamation announcing that the Portuguese royal family had been deposed. Portugal would be ruled by a temporary French military administration led by General Junot. All of Portugal, including the parts Napoleon had promised to Godoy and the Spanish royal family. His double cross was finally revealed for what it was. Around this same time, word began to spread that Marshal Murat himself was leading 50,000 French troops towards Madrid. Ironically, these two pieces of terrible news actually improved the outlook for Spanish government bonds. Investors believed the unfolding national crisis had now become so bad that there was no way Godoy's career could survive. Rumors began to spread that the king was about to dismiss his prime minister. The idea that the sausage maker might soon be gone increased confidence in Spanish government bonds. But these optimistic investors were still underestimating the royal couple's level of commitment to Godoy. Despite the deepening crisis, King Charles intended to stick by his wife's man. Finally, someone took it upon himself to take drastic action. A young aristocrat and military officer named Eugenio Palafox Portocarrero, the Count of Teba, began organizing a new conspiracy against the king and Godoy. He gathered sympathetic noblemen, then began traveling around the countryside south of Madrid, using a fake name disguised as a peasant, working to stir up anti-Godoy sentiments among the common people. As you might imagine, he didn't have to work very hard. Once people were suitably outraged, Teba encouraged them to congregate around the town of Aranjuez, where he knew the royal family was headed. The Count even found sympathetic ears among the king's own household staff, who by this point were worried the royal family was going to flee into exile, as the Portuguese royal family had so recently done, leaving the staff without jobs or paychecks. As Teba had predicted, the royal family and their entourage had taken up temporary residence in Aranjuez, a town about 50 kilometers or 31 miles south of Madrid, where there was a royal palace. Ironically, by now, the king and Godoy had finally become convinced of Napoleon's bad intentions, and were debating mobilizing the Spanish army to finally oppose the advancing French. But this change of heart came too late to save Godoy's administration. The Count of Teba's evangelizing was having the desired effect. Outraged, anti-Godoy peasants were arriving in Aranjuez. A sullen, angry mood seems to have settled over the town itself, even among the royal family's own personal staff and the minor government officials who had accompanied them on their flight. Charles and Godoy were worried. They ordered two regiments of the Royal Guard to march south to Aranjuez from Madrid, hoping to contain any unrest with force. 
Unfortunately for the king and the sausage maker, the Count of Teba got to these units first. He asked for a confidential audience with the officers of the guard. Teba was a fellow officer, and a nobleman in good standing. His words carried weight, and the officers agreed to meet with him. Teba was able to convince them all to take an oath, swearing they would not obey Godoy if he ordered them to act against the people, but would instead arrest Godoy himself. Meanwhile, King Charles released a royal proclamation, clearly aimed at calming the public mood. He told the people of Spain that he loved them as a father loves his children, and that he would never abandon them. He also assured the people that the French were Spain's allies, and had come to the country with good intentions. All of these were lies. By now, not even Charles himself believed the French were acting in good faith. He and Godoy were indeed discussing the possibility of the royal family fleeing abroad. And, of course, if Charles was the father of the Spanish people, he had never been a very good or attentive parent. The proclamation did not have the desired effect. The situation at Aranjuez grew increasingly tense. The long-awaited climax of Spain's political crisis would arrive on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1808. At around one in the morning, someone fired a pistol near the royal palace. To this day, no one knows who it was, why they fired, or even what side they were on. Hearing this noise, the anti-Godoy peasants and townspeople in the area suspected something was up. Perhaps King Charles had ordered a crackdown, or perhaps the anti-Godoy nobles were finally making their move. In any case, the people wanted to affect the outcome. They began lighting torches and assembling in large crowds. Count Teba decided to seize the moment. He mounted his horse and led the mobs towards the house where Godoy was staying. As promised, the officers of the guard restrained their men, refusing to fire on the crowd or even to obstruct them in any way. The coup was on. As they marched through the streets, the people chanted, Long live the king, death to the tyrant. This was much more like an old medieval peasant revolt than a scene out of the French Revolution. Even as they broke the king's law and flouted his authority, the rioters were clear that they supported the king himself, and were only opposed to the prime minister. Godoy was awakened by the noise long before the crowd found the courage to burst into his house. He knew how the common people despised him. He could hear them chanting for his death. It wasn't hard to guess that things would not go well for him if he was discovered. The Prince of Peace grabbed his pistols, ran to the attic, and rolled himself up in a spare piece of carpet. The mob broke down the door and found Godoy's wife in her bedclothes. She told them her husband was not there, and she didn't know where he had gone. The house was searched, but apparently not very thoroughly, because no one thought to investigate the suspiciously large piece of carpet in the attic. Godoy was not discovered. Ominously for Charles and Godoy, many guardsmen joined the crowd. This was a dangerous situation, but things did not get out of control. The mob chivalrously delivered Senora Godoy to the royal palace, and posted guards in Godoy's house in case the sausage-maker returned. Despite their failure to find the tyrant, the mob was actually on the verge of success. By now, everyone at the royal palace was awake, 
and they were terrified. I would guess every monarch of this period had nightmares of angry mobs of torch-bearing commoners congregating outside the royal palace, especially after what had happened to Cousin Louis in France. Now the nightmare seemed to be coming true. His own personal guards had deserted him. We know the crowd didn't actually wish the king or his family any harm, but everyone in the palace was surely very aware of the fact that if the crowd changed their minds and decided to massacre everyone inside, there would not be much stopping them. And so, Charles finally did what everyone in Spain had been begging him to do for six years. At around five in the morning, March 17, 1808, the king signed a decree dismissing Manuel Godoy from all government positions. The sausage maker was finally out. That morning, Prince Ferdinand appeared on the balcony of the royal palace to announce this momentous news to the crowd. Ferdinand was now very popular after his own failed conspiracy against Godoy, but it seems this address got a muted reaction. Godoy's dismissal was certainly welcome news, but the mob would not be satisfied until they saw his blood. March 17th must have been a strange day in Aranjuez. It was an anticlimax. They had finally forced the king to get rid of Godoy, but by now, no one had actually seen Godoy for about 12 hours. Members of the mob and royal guardsmen wandered the area, searching the homes of prominent people who might have hidden the sausage maker, but no one was able to find a trace. In fact, he was still hiding in his attic, clutching his pistols wrapped up in that bit of carpet, unable to leave because there were still hostile guardsmen and members of the crowd wandering around the house. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The next day, the whole royal family made a public appearance on the balcony of the palace, hoping to calm things down and start to rebuild their relationship with the public. The mood in the town did seem slightly less fevered, but the search for Godoy continued, despite the king's publicly expressed wishes that the Prince of Peace be left in peace. Amazingly, Godoy wasn't finally apprehended until the next day, March 19th. Things were quiet enough in his house that he decided to risk leaving his carpet for a drink of water, and was discovered by a guardsman. He had spent nearly two days hiding in the attic. You almost feel bad for him, but after all he had put the country through, perhaps he deserved a little discomfort. News of the discovery of the sausage maker spread through Aranjuez like wildfire. Soon, he was at the center of an angry crowd, being punched, kicked, beaten with clubs, and generally abused by dozens of people. The mob's rallying cry had been, Long live the king, death to the tyrant, and it seems they aimed to follow through with that threat. Fortunately for Godoy, he was formally arrested by several guardsmen in the crowd. They may have hated him, but they wanted to see him stand trial. 
Then Prince Ferdinand appeared on the scene. He begged for Godoy's life, and thanks to his newfound popularity, the crowd listened. It must have been a strange moment for Ferdinand. He had just saved a man he had hated with every fiber of his being for almost his entire life. Now that his former right-hand man was finally in custody, King Charles summoned an entire company of the Carbineros, the Spanish equivalent of the French gendarmes, to protect Godoy from any further mob violence. The former prime minister was to be taken to house arrest in the famous Alhambra Palace, where presumably he would be awaiting trial, although at this point that had not been officially decided, and it could have been intended simply as protective custody. The mob was not pleased with this result. When the carriage arrived to take Godoy to the Alhambra, they physically ripped it apart. Once again, Prince Ferdinand left the palace to attempt to reason with the crowd, and once again, he succeeded in restoring order. King Charles was despondent. His people, and even his personal royal guard, were ignoring his orders and acting on their own initiative. The mob claimed they supported Charles, but his authority was clearly being undermined. Meanwhile, people were obeying his son, the crown prince, who had so recently tried to overthrow Charles. And more than that, the man Charles had relied upon since he took the throne was suddenly gone. The king barely knew how to function without Godoy by his side. As we discussed earlier, the king was now finally convinced that Napoleon had bad intentions for Spain. The weight of this mounting crisis must have felt unbearable on his small, soft shoulders, especially now that his beloved Prince of Peace was gone and no longer able to help him with the burden. And so, on March 19, 1808, King Charles IV of Spain abdicated in favor of his son. Young Prince Ferdinand would become King Ferdinand VII. Apparently, Charles seemed happy as he signed away his crown. He had never gotten much joy out of being monarch, and the past few months must have been particularly taxing. I'm sure he was relieved. Later that day, Charles explained to his priest, quote, Let us speak clearly. Bonaparte is coming, and not with good intentions. Ferdinand will be better able to benefit the nation than I under the circumstances. This is the reason for my renunciation. End quote. According to some sources, when Queen Maria Luisa heard the news, she tried to organize a counter coup against her own son to put Charles back in charge. But probably unsurprisingly, she couldn't find anyone willing to join this conspiracy. All over the world, from the southern tip of Chile to the forests of northern California, and from Manila Bay to the Gulf of Guinea, millions of people had a new monarch, although it would be months before many of them heard the news. As word spread across Spain, the whole country erupted in spontaneous celebrations. The way people were acting, you would think Spain had just won a long, bitter war, which is maybe true in a certain sense. Many Spaniards had perceived Godoy's term in office as a sustained assault on the country from within its own government. In Madrid, happy but vengeful mobs attacked the homes of Godoy's family, stealing everything they could and destroying anything they couldn't. They even killed the horses. 
Others marched through the streets, waving Spanish flags and carrying portraits of their new king, although in at least one case, the crowd mistook a portrait of Charles as a young man for a portrait of Ferdinand. During Godoy's time in office, many town halls throughout Spain had been given portraits or statues of the sausage maker to display in some prominent location. These were all smashed or burned, typically in the town square, always with great enthusiasm. In the city of Valladolid, the crowd even destroyed the carriage which had brought the portrait to the city hall, then threw its remains into the river. One observer explained, quote, not the least relic should be allowed to remain of such an infamous man. End quote. Many believed the crisis was over, or at least would soon end. The hated sausage maker was finally gone, as was his weak puppet king. Ferdinand had never been more popular in the wake of his failed coup. People were eager to see him take power, and many thought he would put the country on a different track. Most people in Spain believed Napoleon supported their new king. After all, it had just recently been revealed that France's ambassador to Spain, François de Beauharnais, had been a part of Ferdinand's failed coup plot. It was publicly known that Ferdinand had expressed a desire to marry a French aristocrat of Napoleon's choosing. Whatever was going on with Napoleon and all these mysterious French troops marching through Spain, Surely it would be resolved now that Ferdinand wore the crown. Which is why no one was terribly alarmed when Marshal Murat entered Madrid on March 23rd at the head of 50,000 men, mostly cavalry plus some infantry of the Imperial Guard. It had only been four days since Charles' abdication. People were still feeling that glow of hope. Their new king entered the capital the very next day and received a rapturous reception. Tens of thousands turned out to greet him, and shouts of, Long live the king, echoed through the streets. Ferdinand chose to enter the city without any kind of military escort or bodyguard, so he could freely mingle with his people. Crowds lifted him and his horse up on their shoulders and carried the new king through the streets. Only about a week ago, many of these people had been worried some kind of national catastrophe might be right around the corner. Now there seemed to be a way out. No surprise, they greeted the man they perceived as their savior with great emotion. It was a glorious day for Spain. Or at least, so the members of the crowd believed. But wasn't this all a little premature? Ferdinand was totally untested. He was only 23 years old. His public popularity was a new phenomenon. The reason so many people liked him was that they knew he had tried to take a stand against Godoy. But what did we really learn about Ferdinand from that incident? True, he had been scheming against Godoy, but not for purely patriotic reasons. The plan would have seen him installed on the throne. It was as much a plot for Ferdinand as it was a plot against Godoy. And he had lots of personal reasons to hate the sausage maker maybe more than anyone else in the country, which is really saying something. He hadn't been very successful as a conspirator. The plot was uncovered almost immediately with no real effort, and had actually redounded to Godoy's benefit. Once he was caught, Ferdinand had looked pretty pathetic, begging his parents for mercy and shamelessly selling out his fellow conspirators. 
Those who knew Ferdinand well were probably a bit amused by his new public profile. Whatever the masses may have believed, the new king was generally not well-liked or well-regarded by his peers. He seems to have inherited his father's dull wits. And, like Charles, he seems not to have had much of a sense of duty to his subjects. He was an old-school absolute monarch. He definitely did not see himself as a public servant. However, even most people who had disliked his father had been at least willing to admit that Charles meant well. It might be a stretch to call the former king kind-hearted, but he had a congenial personality. He had been a bit aloof as king, but he at least wished people well, even if he hadn't actually done much to improve their lives. The same could not be said of his son. Ferdinand had a dark side. He was petty, vengeful, and suspicious of others, a misanthrope. Much like his great enemy Godoy, Ferdinand was also selfish and unscrupulous. By the time of his death, King Ferdinand VII would be almost universally despised. I wonder how many of the people crying out, Long live the king, in the streets of Madrid on that spring day in 1808, would have guessed they were cheering for a man who would go down in history as one of their country's worst rulers. So perhaps people were being a bit hasty in pinning so many hopes on the new king. But they had no way of knowing that. His true character would only be revealed with time. Setting aside the issue of Ferdinand's character, the abdication of his father, King Charles, had been a bit abrupt, hadn't it? He told his priest he had given up the crown for reasons of state, because he thought his son would be better equipped to manage the mounting crisis with France. But there seemed to have been some transitory emotional reasons as well. His fear of the mob. His discomfort at the idea of governing the country without Godoy by his side and his frustration with his own popularity waning as his sons rose. The incident at Aranjuez had certainly been frightening for the royal family, but even as they rioted, the mob had taken care to express its continued support for the king. No one had asked for his abdication. The anger towards the royal government had almost all been directed at Godoy, not the king himself. The tumult at Aranjuez as this whole affair is known to history, had been alarming and damaging for Charles. But he probably could have survived it with his crown still on his head, had he chosen to. For all these reasons, the former king began to feel regret. A person of greater intelligence or stronger character probably would have recognized that there is no looking back from this type of momentous world-historic decision. The die was cast. For better or for worse, Charles's time on the throne was over. But the ex-king allowed himself to wallow in regret. Someone smarter and more devious took advantage. The French ambassador, François de Beauharnais, convinced Charles to write and sign a letter in which he claimed his right to retake the crown from his son. Amazingly, Charles was then somehow convinced to leave this letter in Beauharnais' possession. He had just handed Napoleon a bargaining chip of incredible value, seemingly for no reasons greater than regret and jealousy towards his own son. Meanwhile, Marshal Murat's soldiers were not endearing themselves to the people of Madrid. 
The French were unwelcome almost everywhere in Spain, and the capital was no exception. One observer wrote, quote, They began to put on imperial and seigneurial airs, as if they were already the sovereign power in the capital. The people, who are all eyes and ears, and see and hear everything, started to look without confidence on their military movements, which had all the appearances of being hostile and doubted the friendship and alliance of their guests. End quote. There were violent confrontations between French soldiers and average Madrileños, just as there had been in other Spanish cities. Ominously, neither Marshal Murat nor Ambassador Beauharnais officially recognized Ferdinand as King of Spain. It was widely believed that Ferdinand had risen to power with Napoleon's support. But if that was the case, what could explain this delay in official recognition? Surely, if Napoleon wanted Ferdinand on the throne, he would have ordered his representatives to recognize his authority as soon as possible, to shore up his position. Why had the emperor not done so? Ferdinand began to worry he had overestimated Napoleon's support for his seizure of power. Strong as he seemed at the moment, with practically the whole country behind him, his position could easily become untenable if France refused to recognize him as Spain's legitimate ruler. His entire reign could hinge on French support. Indeed, without the emperor's good graces, it might be an open question whether or not Ferdinand could rule at all. He resolved to go to Napoleon himself and plead his case face to face. Meanwhile, his father, the former King Charles's, regrets had continued to fester. He was now openly claiming his letter of abdication had been coerced, and thus was not legally binding, by implication accusing his son of a criminal coup d'etat. It had not even been a month since Charles's abdication, and already it was clear that those celebrations had been premature. Neither Ferdinand nor Charles knew it yet, but the tumult at Aranjuez and the subsequent bickering between father and son had sealed their family's fate. Both men were now lobbying Napoleon to support their respective claim to the throne, but neither one of them knew that these events had left Napoleon disgusted and had totally shattered any remaining faith he had in the Bourbon dynasty's ability to rule Spain. The emperor pretended he was weighing these competing claims, but he had already decided that neither man deserved to wear a crown, and, Napoleon being Napoleon, he took it upon himself to ensure that neither would rule Spain. But that's a story for next episode. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to a book that was a big help in writing this episode, Napoleon's Cursed War by Ronald Fraser. Until next time... Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.